0: good morning all welcome to the common good podcast so good to have you here today it's a wednesday and on wednesdays as you know uh if you keep up with our little schedule around here we talk about faith in the common good today's june 7th and i gotta tell you i am so excited for this day it's gonna be a fabulous day i was able to have a conversation with one of my mentors one of my favorite people in the world someone who i call my bishop that's uh, bishop Mary Ann buddy she's the episcopal bishop the episcopal bishop of washington dc in the episcopal church things are organized with different levels of leaders bishops are one of these she's going to talk a bit about this what is a bishop what do they do now i'm not an episcopalian but she's my bishop in fact if you're looking for a bishop consider taking on marianne she's fantastic Uh, I met Marianne a long while ago when I was first starting the church that I was pastor of for 20 years called Solomon's Porch. In 1999, I met Marianne Buddy. She was a pastor of a church just up the hill, an Episcopal church. And she was the most kind, the most welcoming to me, a young evangelical pastor starting another church right in her neighborhood, right down the street, above a little coffee shop. We had this little rented space. In an upper loft area, and we were starting a new project on how to be Christian in the world, a new church in the evangelical tradition. And Marianne, an Episcopal priest, welcomed us in, came and spoke at our church. She's one of the few people that actually in the early days came and spoke at our church. She was so gracious to us, has become a lifelong friend. Her and her husband, Paul, are tremendous supporters of so much goodness in the world, and I count them as such good and close friends. So uh, she wrote this fabulous book, called How We Learn to Be Brave. Now, now here's, here's the thing. Marianne, you might recognize her or know her. If you remember a few years ago when then-President Donald Trump chose to clear out protesters in early June that were protesting at Lafayette, Lafayette Square, right outside the back of the White House, he had the military clear those protesters out so he could walk from the White House across that park plaza To stand in front of St. John's Church and hold up a Bible, a photo op, as if to say his role of clearing these protesters, his law and order call was ordained by God, not only using the Bible as the prop in his hand, but St. John's Episcopal Church, it's often referred to as the Church of the Presidents, right behind him. Well, that church. That church is in the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. That church is in the purview and the care of Marianne Buddy, the bishop of the Episcopal Church of Washington. So she was asked to comment on it, and she did, and it was fantastic. She was a leading voice in all of this, found her own way to be brave. Now, Marianne has been a growing voice of bravery and common good and faith for decades, I've had the privilege of knowing that if you're new to Marianne Buddy, you're going to have the privilege of finding this out. I don't know what you think of bishops, but this one's fantastic. So uh, get ready to have a really great time. Now, I did record this a day ago, uh, but this is live right now. So I'm going to be monitoring the chat. So good morning, Jim. Good morning, Yabitz. Good to see uh, you all on here. Um you know, we we try the best that we can to give you a chance to interact with each other, to talk to each other. Both Jim and Yabitz are on are on YouTube. You can do this on YouTube. It's our pr- pr- preferred place, but you're welcome to do it over on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or the other places where we're putting this broadcast out. Twitch is another place. Maybe not even heard of Twitch, but we're there. Um so share this broadly, if you would, and uh, share it with others um, if you think that they'd be interested, both live and then in the uh, recorded versions. And the podcast for this will come out uh, here this morning as well, if you we do into the audio only. So here it is. She's written this really great book. We're going to talk about it, how we learn to be brave, decisive moments in life and faith. Uh, I'm a big fan of the book, big fan of Marianne Buddy. And here's our conversation from a few days ago. And I'll be in the chat, uh, sort of keeping up on things um, best that I can. Uh, hey, Marianne! So good to have you uh, have you here. Um, the the Common Good podcast feels so fortunate uh, to be talking with Bishop Marianne Buddy, and especially about this great book of yours um, this this terrific uh, book on how we learn to be brave. Uh, Marianne, thanks for this. Uh, th- thanks for this book. Um, d- let's start with this. Uh, what does it mean to be a bishop of the Washington Diocese? What what before we get into the great book that you've written and what it means to be an author. What is a bishop?
1: (laughs) Oh, Doug, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I would say to be a bishop in the Episcopal Church is to be an elected leader of a geographic region that we call a diocese. And in my case, that is the eighty-six congregations, Episcopal congregations, and affiliated institutions, schools, few agencies in the Washington D.C. area, including which is the District of Columbia and four Maryland counties. So, the big part of my job is to be a spiritual leader and a guide, an encourager, a uh, quipper of leaders, and you know, supporter of congregations. It has, a, um, it has a public role. Um, the national, Washington National Cathedral is a part of our diocese and that is perhaps the most symbolic representation of a civic public arena forum for ministry, but every bishop has a public role. Um, we are called upon to give voice to um, what we believe is a, an appropriate Christian expression of living into the common good as your organization tries to do. And so from time to time, I have that responsibility as well. Um, there are other duties as assigned, but I would say the bread and butter are the, are the tending to the congregations and leaders and, um, and then being the representative of our church um, is symbolically and in physical presence um, when called upon or when the situation uh, requires.
0: And unlike uh, some traditions where someone might be born into it, one is not born a bishop, right? Uh, so
1: No, no, one is elected and okay. it is our, our process is this very um, paradoxical combination of the symbolic trappings of a hierarchy. Uh, with all of the regalia and language of authority that would give someone the impression that I call all the shots. Um, But in fact, uh, we're a very democratic church. Um, Most decisions are made at the local level through a democratic process. And and as I said, I was elected democratically. Um, In our diocese, all support for the diocese in terms of how we are sustained is voluntary. And so I don't have a lot of um, Uh, levers, if you will, of actual authority to get people to, if I wanted to do this, to do what I want them to do. It's much more persuasive and and, uh, aspirational, as well as attempting to embody something of the life and teachings of Jesus in such a way that people find compelling. And you know enough about the church world to know that uh, denominations like the Episcopal Church are um, are not necessarily the first place that people turn to when looking for a Christian path anymore, if they ever were. And so there's also a real process of self-examination and revitalization and adapting an ancient tradition to a very uh, contemporary world. Um, some of that is really life-giving and some of that's just hard, you know, mm-hmm. just trying to discern what that looks like in real time
0: and before you were a bishop when we first met you were a pastor of a of a congregation uh here here in minneapolis Um, was, and a lot of this book is not just about you know how you learn to be brave when you're the bishop uh this is how you learn to be brave as just a regular person right like that's um to talk a little bit about how you ended up becoming a a pastor at all like how why, why did you choose the religious route and 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 want to be somebody that was serving you know right. the churches but also the world in that way
1: well um as i look back on it and i'm i'm one of the i would say few few people my age i'm in my early 60s now that the path has been remarkably singular you know i was ordained young in my 20s and have been on this path um this sort of religious life denominational leader path all of my adult vocation practically and that was a real that's a huge surprise to me when i think of how um, my early years um started out but i i suspect that the roots ran pretty deep in that i felt from a from an adolescent on forward a um a deep conviction that the life and teachings of Jesus and what it meant to follow Jesus was something that um, had claimed me. I don't know that I, I I chose it and I keep on choosing it, but it, as is often said in the scriptures and in other, um spiritual uh writings of other people that you and i both admire there is a sense of being summoned to a life or or, or called to this and um and i often said to people when i especially when i was trying to lead that church that you mentioned and raising two small kids that you know i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily recommend this life to anybody but i i also wouldn't have traded it right i mean it was it felt like my life and and it surprised me in that i had aspirations when i first um, imagined myself in this role as really living on the margins of society i was deeply inspired by christian leaders who chose the path of voluntary poverty you know the likes of dorothy day or the uh, missionaries in central america during the central american wars and i i saw myself uh, Mm -hmm. all that life um, but as my life unfolded and as the choices came before me i i I found myself drawn to a a, a fairly you know in the middle of the system kind of role, right uh-huh. parish priest um and then and then institutional leader and that you know no one was more surprised by that than I, but I also took to it, you know I felt. I felt like okay, this 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 seems this seems like where I belong, and I have um, I've you know frankly I've followed it ever since. Um, few few bumps along the way that we don't you know we could go into if you want to, but there's you know lots of them. But I have felt pretty um, I've never felt called to veer off that path. Hmm. So here yeah, I am. And-
0: and one of the genius things that you do in this in this book is you suggest these different ways that people are brave, and one of them is that you stay. And I think that's part of your uh, part of your story. Um, when my, when my kids were little and they were in my son wanted to play football, so fifth or sixth grade we went to football
1: yeah.
0: practice. Um, or I'd have a parent meeting ahead of time, and one of the parents was uh, giving a short presentation on the dangers of football, basically trying to talk. Parents out of out of this and said you know in addition to head collisions which for fifth graders and stuff isn't so much the deal but broken collarbones broken wrists so this person goes on for I mean what felt like a terribly long period of time right describing the hazards of this practice and uh, sort of toward the end he finally reveals something he should have said earlier which was. And as an emergency room doctor, I see these things all the time, right? So here was a guy who, because of his role in life, he's like, I'm telling you what, about every kid I see at work comes in, because he had a a preset group of uh, people who had been injured playing football. So every fall, you know, as an emergency room doctor. And I think about that a lot for those of us who are in any of the people work, helping professions, ministry. There's a thing that... we interact with people um, based on a role at a time in life when they are sharing things that they might not share otherwise, or you know, weddings, funerals, personal crisis, spiritual growth. Someone saying, "I want to go through a real change." Something has happened, and so I don't know. It's, it's almost like emergency room doctors see people when they're sick, and we see people at these moments of of life. And what does it mean to to be like? I- do you have that sense? And did that, get, did that play into how you thought about the, the writing of this book and, and the other ministry you do, but specifically what was going through your mind when you were thinking about humanity?
1: Um, that's a great story, by the way. And I, to some degree, although I don't know how conscious I was about that, except I, 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 am, I am so drawn as are you and most pastors I know, to the stories of people, ordinary people, not you know, not the, the not the ones that you would just assume to be um, able and uh, uh, destined for greatness, but people in all the frailty of humanity who are nonetheless in situations that call upon them to do something or to be someone that is absolutely needed in that moment. Hmm. And, um, and that that is, for me, one of the more um, faith-inspiring moments in human life. I hmm. I, often, I, mean, I think I said in the book at some point that a, a decisive moment makes a believer out of everyone if just for that moment, right? There is this sense of being um, called to something, it's large or small, and you step up into that. Mm -hmm. Often it's in crisis. Often it's in, uh, is a result of suffering. Um, And I, and our traditions speak to that so powerfully. It's also in terms, it's also like great opportunity and great joy, right? Mm -hmm. It's not always sadness, but it is that sense of of being fully alive. And Mm -hmm. I'm drawn to that. I would say the other thing that drew me into leadership in the church, it was it's the individual piece that you described. But I also found myself falling in love with the experience of creating uh, a culture or a feeling that people would have when they walked into our church, Mm -hmm. right? Or into the sanctuary when we began worship. And I I think about that every time I lead worship, although now like I'm in a different church every Sunday, so it's not, you know, it's not mine to craft completely, but what can I do in my with my presence, with my being, mm. to create a space where people can hear uh, what's most important for them to hear in that moment, where people can feel safe and loved and inspired and collectively part of something. And so I I love that as a as a person who gets to participate in communal worship every week and sometimes more than that. And I think in my writing, I I try to emulate that feeling of both, you know, reaching person to person, but also to touch something more universal or communal that can you know reassure us that our individual stories are not like these isolated little pods. But that we're part of something bigger.
0: Yeah, the, I think this is such a smart idea to talk about bravery. But a lot of people, uh, I know you reference this in the book. They they think about it in like a hero narrative, right? Like yeah. I don't know, would I, if I saw a crisis going on, could I step up? Or they just kind of get some notion in their mind about what it means to be, to be brave. And you're careful to suggest that look, b- bravery is is a, a thing that we can practice or we can work toward, or we can develop the the capacity for it because it comes in, as you say, in those decisive moments, which I just found reading the book, such a great phrase, right? These, these moments that there's a long conversation that I've followed among intellectuals about kind of this debate, whether there's great people or only people in great moments, right? right. It's a really interesting kind of, kind of notion, you know, um, and then people rise to that to that to that moment, and it's just an interesting way to think about it because it causes you to think about yourself and, and others in a different way. But this idea of preparation, yes, for a moment, right? Um, boy, that feels like something that our spiritual traditions have embedded in them and what they should do. And I'm not sure a lot of a lot of us kind of do that. In fact, sometimes it seems like the Christian story for a lot of people is the bailout for having to be brave, right? Like, well, and there
1: like- and I, you know, I I know that story really well, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> a number of times I've had to pray, Lord, you know, I got myself into this, but I'd sure appreciate a lifeline, right? But um, but no, this idea of preparation. And I was actually talking to a young man um, who's who I think is moving toward a threshold in his life and ministry recently and he was asking me for you know among other things my advice and one of the things i found myself saying which is was was something i learned through a lot of painful stretches of life that where nothing dramatic seemed to be happening at all right that what could i do in those times to put myself in places of opportunity later on hmm. where i would be where i could be of use or where i could step into a moment that i wasn't capable of stepping into at the time and and i and i think that artists and other people who have a practice that requires hmm. Being really bad for a long time until you're good, right? You know that you don't walk onto the stage of an of Orchestra Hall and assume your place as the first chair, right? I mean, you work toward that, and that there's something about life that is innately um, preparing us for things. But in the spiritual life, we don't always know what they're what we're being prepared for, right? Um, sometimes we know, and and sometimes we prepare. Uh, speaking for myself, no, I, I I write about a stretch where I felt like I really did want. I mean, to be honest, I really wanted a chance to be a leader in a larger capacity than as the parish priest in you know a neighborhood in Minneapolis. I really wanted that, and I in some ways I felt called to it. But I I failed twice at um, at being chosen, right? And in both of those instances, I had to go back and learn, okay, if I were to equip myself, if I'm given another chance, Mm. what do I need to have in my repertoire that I don't have now? And how can I move toward that? Which was a very conscious piece, right? with Full appreciation that there were no guarantees that it would happen, right? So I also had to make my peace yeah. with the fact that I could land anywhere, which is the reality of life. And so there's that. And then, and then I think also we can look back, um, as I mentioned, one person that I spoke with in the book who who said at a critical juncture in his life, you know, I've been preparing my whole life for this. And it's not like he had a plan since the time he was ten, like, right. you know. But he looked back and he saw the pieces in a way that said, "Oh yeah, this is this is the culmination of a life's journey, hmm. and I I'm ready. I am ready for this.
0: All right, so, so it is it is exhilarating. Um, so." It, Even though you're the Bishop of the Washington Diocese of the Episcopal Church, it involves the National Cathedral, which plays a role in civic religion or in civic Mm -hmm. life as a religious uh, space. uh, So things happen there. Funerals happen there. Inaugurations of presidents. Prayers for inaugurations of presidents happen there. It's just a thing because it was built for that purpose. And you can talk as much about the cathedral as you want. But you personally and in your role are not... A political person, right? Like um, in the in the sense of American politics and even Washington D.C. politics and all of that. Like you function above and outside of and supportive of all of the people in that space. In fact, we've talked a lot about that. We were both pastors, you know, of churches at the same time. You became a bishop. I stayed in that role. I've mm-hmm. since shifted to a much more political foot forward in mm-hmm. the work that we're trying to do because I think we're just living a particular moment where experience of Donald Trump is a hazard to people. So I've taken a much more specific political edge and we've talked a lot about this. You've been a great guide. And there's been things that I'm like, Hey, we're doing this with leaders. And you're like, Hey, I can't do that stuff in my role. Like there's a separation. Okay. So I just want to, I just want to name that that your primary function is not to be a commentator on politics or on what the president is doing in the president's role or so on. And then a moment showed up. And frankly, um, And I'm going on here, but but frankly, I I, growing up as a a kid in the 70s and really my teenage years in the 80s, I looked at the period of time earlier in American history, my childhood just forward and thought, man, what would it have been like to have lived in a time of great social turmoil? I know for some reason, like it just felt like there were times when there was a lot going on. And I wasn't in one of those. Like I was. I know.
1: I, I felt the same way, by the way. I, growing up in the same band, I missed
0: it. Right? I literally <laughs> missed it. I missed all the good music. I missed all the good, you know. Okay, so 2016 and then really 2020 comes along. Right. And we're living in a pandemic. I mean, things are shutting down. People like you and your organization institution are having to scramble. I mean, no, no, no part of our American society is as impacted by not being able to have personal meetings as churches. Right. Like that's just right up there with, you know, grocery stores and churches were not declared to be essential spaces. So everybody, you know, there was a lot going on, a lot of pressure. George Floyd was murdered up the street from where I am now uh, by the Minneapolis police and the world exploded. Partly because of that moment, partly because of the buildup of an election that was coming in Donald Trump, and partly because of the pandemic, and just there was a lot. And all of a sudden, Marianne, we were all right in the middle of it, especially if you thought about the stuff like we do. Right. And I bring up all of that, because you start the book with sort of a prelude and then sort of a postlude at the end, you know, to use church words, saying you know, on whatever it was, I should, I should look at it again, but yes. 7 6 PM on June 9th or whatever, like you name a date of a specific moment. Right. Um, When Donald Trump walked across Lafayette square and held up a Bible in front of a church that was under your, your care
1: mm-hmm. and
0: use it as a backdrop with the military clearing people out. And that moved you into a new space differently can, can you talk a bit about that how that felt um why right. you included that as the, the sort of beginning of the book and all can, so can you just give us a little bit a little bit sure. more context you can tell that story any way you want I, I chose not to put the picture up uh we've used that picture so many times in our vote coming good stuff I, I chose not to put it up as to not you know like right. you have to endure it endure it again because it's you know I'm sure it's in your mind as it is in mine um and right. talk about, can you just talk a bit about that and how, what that felt like when you were trying to be in your, in your role that had been so established and now you were in a moment of, because that's the thing about decisive moments, they don't appear like you think they're going to appear. So you're, you're right. preparing for something that's going to end up looking, looking really right.
1: different. Right. Um, let me just, uh, widen the lens a tiny bit, uh, because there were a couple of things that were, um, that were antecedents to that moment that I think were significant um, in my, in the way things rolled out. Um, First of all, um, being a religious leader in the Donald Trump presidency was a constant balancing act. And in terms of having to discern at any given moment how to respond to the outrageous events, decisions, and words of this former president, I mean, every morning you would wake up to the latest tweet, right? I mean, that was like the first thing that, and so it was a, um, and and um, and a few of us I mean, and and so there was that. I mean, there was just that constant barrage, of uh, of outrage, in a in a moral sense. Not there was certainly a partisan debate going on, but there was a moral a question that was constantly being thrust into our faces. And um, And so I had I had that wasn't the first time that I had spoken out against something that the president had said or done. I didn't do it every week, but I there were a few times when it just felt like this, this is in my lane, this is in my wheelhouse, and I've got to say or do something. And one was around the caging of children at the border, right? And the other was when he referred to the city of Baltimore as infested, right? An infested city. And he called upon those elected officials that were naturalized citizens from other countries to go back where they came from, right? Do you remember yeah. all that?
0: I do
1: and, um, and to be honest, um, in the cages situation, no one paid attention to what the Bishop of Washington said. And in the um, Baltimore piece, we got a little bit of airplay on that because it was, it was just so, but I mean like, so I had a little bit of, but I, I can't say that I went into that moment expecting to be at the center of a news cycle for four days, right? That just wasn't in my head because, that that's not how my world works anymore. I'm just not that person. And my platform isn't that influential, right? It's just it's just not for all the trappings of the cathedral. It's just not. And so so those 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 things were but it was like this this cannot go unaddressed. There was that piece. The other piece, and and you played a part in this for me, Doug. You don't remember this, but the the George Floyd murder was the last, or the latest, or the most dramatic in a series of of deaths uh, by poli- black men and women by police officers or vigilante citizens that had been growing in. Um, had been just becoming it was sort of becoming like this rhythm of events that were happening in the wider country uh, uh, over time. And at every, and there was a growing sense um, among the people I serve, which have a significant um, black population here in Washington and in the metro area, a significant sense of like, are we, you know, what are we talking? We have got to do something about this. And I was feeling a bit. Um, as i often do late to the late like what do i do what do i say right how do i how do i respond to this and then george floyd was murdered in minneapolis which is you know not only where you live it's where i lived for 18 years where we still have a home where our children and our grandchildren live and um you and i were talking about your role in the in the you know sort of spontaneous outpouring in the streets of minneapolis and how you and other faith leaders were trying to be a faithful presence a mediating presence a calming presence in that you know in that intense moment where there was some violence some looting and a whole lot of peaceful people wanting to be out there and to express their grief their rage their desire for change so the day when when the when the the, protests moved to Washington, and they moved pretty quickly. And they were starting, people were starting to gather at Lafayette Square, which is that place between the White House and the church that, um, that we're talking about. I went down the, the couple of days before to meet with the leaders of that church to say, we could be a pastoral presence here on the, on the plaza, of st John's, and we could offer you know face masks and sanitation you know we could offer mm-hmm. granola bars and water we could pray with people we could just be there and the leader said that's great but we can't do it alone and i said no of course not uh, let me work on galvanizing other people in, across our churches and we'll we'll work on this right um so we started doing that and then the next night someone threw a fire torch in the church, right? You may not remember that, but someone threw. So for about, you know, again, another part of the news, St. John's Church is up in flames. And it, it was a minor fire that was attended to very quickly. And we, the leaders of the church decided, okay, we don't like the fact that our church was, you know, was affected in this way, but we're not gonna lose focus. We're going to keep our focus on mm. the main thing, which was that a, poli- that a police officer murdered a person. And um, yeah. we have, you know, so we were just, so all of this was building, right? And then the next day, um, President Trump was in the Rose Garden after he had berated mayors across the country for being such wimps, in his words, and threatening to bring in military force against peaceful protesters so that was in the afternoon and that was what i was listening Mm to yeah and then then this event which you know which we've all talked about and we all know and i actually didn't see it in real time it wasn't covered on Mm -hmm. you know i was watching the news with my mom and um, but my people just started calling me and texting me and telling me this was happening and i I just thought I don't I don't know what to do. So I, st- I called a couple of communications people. I said, "What do I What do I do? What do I say?" And one person just said, "Look, the sun cannot go down without hearing from you." And I thought, "You know, you're absolutely right." And I said, yeah. "Oh," he said, "Let me see if I can. I have someone at CNN. Let me see if I can call them." I called. Um, the, the religious editor of the Washington Post, who I happen, you know, she interviews me from time to time, I happen to have her cell phone, and I just started talking, and little as I know, she's tweeting as I'm talking, right? The bishop says it, and I'm just blathering, right? Melissa, this is an outrageous <laughs> and then And then it got picked up, right? So, but I wasn't, it was a culmination of a lot of things mm-hmm. that I was feeling like I, I need to, I, So I was sort of praying and asking and and then, and then as, as sometimes happen, not, not very often the, you know, there's this confluence of, you know, a lot of people staying at home, watching television, a lot of people out on the streets themselves, a lot of religious leaders just thinking, oh my God, what, what are we seeing? Uh, to be fair a lot of other religious leaders saying yes we you know we believe that donald trump is our not only our political leader but our religious leader as well and he was claiming that mantle he was using it was code language right to his base his evangelical base and i knew no matter i mean i didn't i had no idea that it was going to touch as many people as it you know as it seemed to but i just knew that um that authority did not belong to him and i i had to muster up everything i had inside me to claim it back right to say that's that's not his that's ours and we stand for something else and we need a president who calms people down rather than riles them up in moments like that and um and not so not only was an abdication of his authority it was a misuse of his yeah. authority. and um so so yeah, I mean I can still get adrenaline thinking about it and then and then as with other things and I write about this too and then it's over, right? I mean then it's over the moment, <laughs> right? But so I rode the wave of it for, you know, for as long as the wave needed me. And then I had to think, okay, what are the implications of what happened for the rest of my life and the life of our churches and you know, so it's yeah. not yeah, so that's what Well, that. well that's it was why. such a uh, it was I, such a great know,
0: service. And I want to yeah. ask you a couple of questions about it, because part of what it did for people like me, um, and I know many other faith leaders, um, it's, it was just so hard during those years to know what was normal. And right. it was so easy to be outraged by so many things. And it didn't seem right that the president would use a church as the backdrop, hold up a Bible, and basically condone the clearing of protesters and law and order narrative and I mean, there's just so many things going on, but also people were just unsure about, well, who gets to speak because that's the thing about religion in America, especially for religious leaders who, you know, and you're stepping up and saying, look, I have a particular vested interest in this place. This is a, one of the churches inside of our community that I have something to say about. And that's like somebody using, you know, my house as the backdrop. Nice. So it freed up people to say, well, even the bishop of the Washington Diocese has said this is wrong, and I'm sure people uh, imbued the bishop of the Washington Diocese of the Episcopal Church with a whole level of power and authority that you don't have and that they've never even know. thought right. about. I mean, they probably didn't even know there were bishops in a diocese, but just seemed like <laughs> I don't know there was a religious leader in Washington D.C. Yeah. that said no, and right. so there was there was all there was certainly all that going on, which I'm guessing you tried to keep out of your your head a little bit. Did you feel nervous about this? Did you, like, did your bravery require you to have to keep some of the more concerning, uh, voices in your own head at at bay? Like, what did you think, Hey, I can't screw this one up. Like I'm, I'm walking the, you know, I'm walking the the bridge here and I don't want to fall left. I don't want to fall right. I just need to stay, stay straight. Or, Or, or were you not, Like how, how did that all, how did that all go? Because in the book you talk about it and it's great, but even though I know you well and we've only talked a little bit about it, this is sort of a place to ask, like, what was going on inside your, your own emotional sensibility at that time? How, how unnerved were you about not wanting to become, you know, an example of how not to do this?
1: Um, in the, in the day the night itself and i would say the first day or two afterwards i wasn't i wasn't thinking i I was not in a thinking part of my brain around you know it was more of an automatic response right it was and i described it you know kind of like a baseball player at the bat right you know it was just it was just you know get up there and swing right um, I would say that the thought process you described was much more operative in the days that followed, mm. um, because there was a lot of energy coming toward me and coming toward our little staff that felt like this could be mishandled. Um, mm. this could be misconstrued. And um, and in in a couple of ways, one of which I write about, which is it places it placed too much focus on us rather than on the protesters who were, you know, sitting out in the hot sun all day, day after day, um, trying to uh, lend their bodies and their voices to something that, um, so there was that. I mean, just undue focus um, and displacement of Mm -hmm. focus. And then the second one, which is, I think, um, it's something I have to watch uh, uh, in my own life, is not to get, not to assume that that moment Mm -hmm is the thing right like that's not it that's i mean that's a moment of symbolic leadership but it's not leadership right it's the leadership happens when when all the lights and the microphones and everybody's gone and you're still faithful Right? Um, I think we're in a time now where the pendulum around conversations about race and racial justice, the pendulum has so swung, right? And And now is the time where it's really important to stay to stay in the game, in the conversation, and live through this time. And so I and I have I've had enough, you know, you know little experience of that to know how, how tempting it is to to want to keep the keep to look for the next light, you know, the next yeah. big day when you can be the you know, but you know, that's the danger. And yes. uh, and so for, you know, for about, a you know, for about a month or two, I was called upon to do all sorts of things right to speak at this and that. And um, and I had to, you know, I kind of had to choose carefully and mm-hmm. also to remember, OK, this is going to die down pretty soon. And, um, and when I was invited to write the book and it was because of this, right? I mean, I don't want to, I was invited by two really lovely literary agents to write a book after they read some of the things I had said. And, and they asked me, I said, well, you know, they asked, they said, if you could write about anything, what would you write about? And I knew I wanted to write about this, but this in the, in the big picture, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not in the look at what happened on june 1st thing i mean i don't want to shirk that i don't want to pretend like that's not that wasn't a big deal it was but the the longer arc of life and the passages of faithfulness and courage are are measured by a different kind of fruitfulness mm-hmm. and that's what i wanted to encourage us all to to remind myself about to be inspired by the people who you know to tell the stories of the people who really inspire me um, and most, and all, the, all the stories I chose in terms of civil rights, you know, with the exception of, of Martin Luther King, are people who, who lived during a time when they were not gonna see a lot of fruit for their efforts, right? I mean, it was one slog after another through the 30s and 40s and 50s, right? And these were, these were not heady times, but those people and their witness, I think are especially instructive in the times we're living now.
0: Well, and that—that's part of the genius of this book. So I really hope the book again is called uh, "How We Learn to Be Brave." For people that are just watching or listening on the podcast version of this, that this kind of bra- look—most people's bravery doesn't have to involve you know a conversation for three minutes with Anderson Cooper, you know, in a moment of social political crisis. Um, yes. That—that's not—that's not how it—that's not how life sort of goes. And and it's a good thing, right? Because that's just a certain kind of that's a certain kind of bravery. Um so so I'll just lay out how you've structured the book. And and first of all, uh, it's so well written. And I love mm-hmm. an author who starts a book and tells us how it's going to go. And in the introduction, <laughs> at the end, you're like, Okay, in chapter one, here's what we're gonna discuss in two and three and four. Like, oh that's great. Um <laughs> Communications, um, right? You know, like. <laughs> yeah. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, and then tell them what you told them.
1: Oh, yeah, right? Yeah.
0: And it's sort of classic. Did you know how this was all going to go when you laid it out? And I want to just—I'll give a brief description of, of the book. Yeah. Did you know that going in? Like, was this material you're already working on? Because you start out by saying, "Look, there's bravery that's required when you have to stay." Chapter on that. There's bravery at a time when you have to go, I guess the other way around, starting with you have to go and then then you have to stay. Um, It's funny as I've thought about this and even wrote it down, you know, my little sticky note. So I would have them all here. I wrote down, stay first and then go. And then just now I said it, even though I'm looking at a sticky note right there on my thing that says, uh, go first somehow, because I think staying requires more bravery than going. I don't know. We could talk about that. that Um, Because you often think like, you know bravery is it's time now to a hero's journey and all that all that stuff you have to go and I don't know something was saying but anyway one one of the chapters is about what it takes to go what it takes to stay what it takes to start a new journey what it takes to accept a, a situation that you didn't ask for and how you're brave in a thing when you're like I didn't make any of this this isn't not a lot of human agency here my bravery is having to come from somewhere else and yeah. then this idea of stepping up like you experienced in the in the story and then this bit about perseverance and experiencing the letdown after bravery, after Mm -hmm. a time when you, when you feel like it's good, did you know all that? Like go stay, start, step up, accept. Was that already in your head? Was that a sermon series you had worked on? Like how, how did it all find itself into this little gem here that we call how we learn to be brave?
1: Um, well, I, um, i had to write an outline right i had to write the beginnings of an actual outline and this would have been in the summer of 2020 late in the summer and i i sat down and i thought about the things that you just said and um i would say that it is material that i've it's really the like the culmination of of a lot of my work right and a lot of although i wound up doing far more research than I anticipated just because writing a book is really different than writing a sermon because you really have to, you have to be a lot more clear, a lot more precise and all of that. But I had, so I had the basic themes and I, um, and it, it gave me a structure in which to, Think more deeply about some of the seasons in my own life Mm. and also in the lives of people that I admire, both historically and personally, and also the great stories of literature and film and mythology, certainly Mm. scripture, that I wanted to highlight. And I, I am, you know, I am at heart a pastor and a religious leader. And part of my hope was to describe for people who may not be. Um, active or participants in a faith tradition to have a sense of what it's like when, when you live a faith tradition in such a way that the stories and the um, spiritual uh, uh, power of that tradition takes up residence inside you for a time, right? You know, and 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 allows you allows me to to do things that I wouldn't have otherwise thought possible because I felt like I was stepping into something that didn't rely on my energy alone, right? Mm-hmm. That if yeah. it had been up to me, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But there's a sense of like, okay, you're not alone. There is this power for me as a Christian. It's, you know, it's all wrapped up around the, the presence and the love of Jesus. And but also just the whole arc of the, you know, of the biblical narrative. And I wanted to bring that to light as well, like how that can be a resource for human beings, not in a, you know, I wanted to be accessible for everybody, but I, I wanted to be clear about that, right? That that's that's available to us, right? That's so so in a sense I had I had everything to work with. I just never had the opportunity to put it all together. And it took a long time. It took two and a half years. And I it was among one of the hardest things I've ever done because I just had to keep going, right? I mean I wrote that chapter on perseverance and part of it was like This, this, you know, as you know, you've written many books. It takes a lot of perseverance Mm -hmm. to just carve out the space to do it. Right. A lot of trial and error and um, and I had help. You know, these these wonderful women just kind of helped me and other people helped me along the way. So that's how it came to be. And,
0: um, you know, there's this thing in the Internet world that's kind of a little uh, words of wisdom. Don't read the comments. Right. When people comment on things. When you're an author, you're like, don't read your previous drafts. Like, just don't right. stuff oh, yourself. There's no yeah. way anyone's going to read this. Why? Why did they? They're going to find out that um. Even if you've written before, you're just like, I don't know. It's the the magic is gone. It is it is yes. run out. So
1: I feel that like every week when I try to write a sermon, it's like, okay, this is the week. It's just not going to happen, right? You're yep. just not going to get a sermon this week. And so that's part of it too. It's the um. Yeah, I mean, that <clears throat> that's a whole other, The just the whole artistic process is yeah. is that combination of whatever comes to us from a source that is beyond us and then just the work that you put in to try to bring it to, to life.
0: And look, this is a terrific book for ordinary people to see themselves as just like, hey, I just live my life. I, mm-hmm. I like ordinary, take, you have to be brave every day, you know, um, all, all that. But it's also really important for leaders, I think. It, it seems to me, and I think you're really good at speaking to this, that there is there's just a leadership crisis across our society in nearly every sector. You hear, I hear it from a lot of people. There's kind of a, a lack of, like, moral leadership and just a sense that leaders are going to do the right thing, y- mm. you know? there. Um, And and I'm not saying we live in a world that needs certain special people to do the right thing and the rest of us, you know, are just, you know, fodder for the, the human experience. But boy, leaders make a big difference. That's why in every part of our society, we, you know, endow people with. Certain capacity to do things that other people we don't let them do. Whether it's the captain of your bowling team, the organizer of your pickleball deal, or your your bishop, you know, you just say to some people, you get to do some things because the rest of us won't, and we really need people to do those th- things in a way that is good and right and brave. And I don't know; it just feels like, um, of all the things that haven't gotten better in my lifetime, because so many things have gotten better. Um, on the list of things that haven't gotten better are are people doing the right thing as leaders? I, I don't know at least it feels that way and and um, mm-hmm. do, do you have do you have a sense of any of that? Do you I mean, can you give me some pastoral advice that maybe <laughs> maybe the world's better than I think it is? Yeah. Or, or were you thinking about this at all? Were you thinking about leaders? Um, I mean, it's hard to live in Washington, D.C. and not think about people who see themselves as leaders. The place is just crawling with those who who lead things. You know, I mean, it's 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 very leader, leader focused kind of place.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, leadership is um, is quite the. um, It's a it's a big topic of discussion on all fronts. Right. I mean, it's it's everywhere. And I would say that it's it's. There's lots of, there's lots of, um, there's lots of reason to be optimistic because there are so many inspiring people, um, to turn to who are doing good work and, 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 um, and inspiring others to do, to do good work. And there is this countervailing, um, uh, force of real, uh, I mean, I read the paper every day and I think, oh, oh my goodness, you know, Um, how much time do we have? How much, how, how are we going to make it? You know, is this, do we have, do we have what it takes as a species to rise to this moment and um, in whatever way that, you know, that moment presents itself to us and I i can um i can be i can be as discouraged as anyone about that or as i was talking to someone else the other day feel you know listening to young people and and wondering kind of where where people in their 20s and 30s find their hope these days Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um and so um so where i where i i have to fall back to all every time is you know those those people that um are authentically leading in whatever realm they're in, be it a, a, a parent or a president, um, and not speaking necessarily about the president. You know, just anyone who just steps into that arena as with as much integrity as they can, and and perhaps maybe, and this is the. Um, we're also pretty we're we're also pretty unforgiving in our society right now and one of the things i wanted to do was to say look you know we all have feet of clay here and we all make big mistakes and um and we you know on some level we have to factor that into the equation too right our own all of us are fallible and so how do we how do we take that part of who we are and offer that right um, and I, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm rambling here. So I'm obviously, no, not I, I'm
0: glad you are. And that's actually a topic that uh, we're going to do a little bit of work on here in, in the Vogue Common Good World on this issue of redemption and what that can right. mean. Like there is an important thing that our faith communities and from the Christian tradition calls us to justice. There's, there's little question, I think in anyone's right. mind that, you know, our call is for the. You know, for the world to look more like the inclusion and the care and the love of God, the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we should call this out and we should do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God, all of that. And that story also includes redemption narratives. In fact, you don't have a biblical narrative that's not someone did not accomplish, fulfill the calling of God and then was called into a graceful Redemptive repentance, whatever project. And they changed. Th- those are the those are the right stories. I was blind and now I see it what, However, people tell that story. It's so powerful. It's so essential to being human beings, so every tradition has it. right. And it feels like a real missing piece in the current American conversation, and especially in the progressive justice spaces. That, and
1: I, um, yeah, I, I, I live in that a lot right now. And, um, and I, um, I, I was, uh, was in a conversation the other day and, and, and this happens to me quite a bit now because there are, we're, we're doing a lot of work around, uh, racial reparations, which is in the Episcopal church, uh, a pretty, pretty tender topic because mm-hmm. our, Go all the way back to the colonial era in some parts of the country and particularly this one and so the slave trade is a part of our past as is every other era of racial injustice in this country that's embedded in our architecture in the neighborhoods where our churches are i mean there's just no getting around it right Right. and um and for some who are pushing this conversation forward there is just a sense of urgency and in I don't want to say impatience in the sense of they're not, they're not interested. They, 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 they just know that this is the right thing for us to do. And they are very clear. Um, and I am, as I often am, um, in the midst of a community where there's a lot of different perspectives on this. And if we're going to move, we can all, we, a certain portion of us can be right right but it's not necessarily going to move the whole body forward right that that's that's not how it's we have to have some space where it's okay to get this wrong and where we can still be in the conversation and others others will say but then you know you're giving you know white people's discomfort um primacy over the Mm -hmm. Over the, over the cause of justice. And I don't have an answer to that because it's true, right? I mean, it's right. So it's like, no, okay, I hear that. So maybe some of us are called to that edge, right? To that, you know, that prophetic edge. And maybe others of us are called to like help the help the body of humanity move toward that vision, right? Whatever the vision is. and um, And that includes some generosity around the edges and some curiosity. um and forgiveness um but it's i'm not going to ask somebody who is um in a very different place in terms of their life experiences and their losses and their trials to be that person if that's not what they feel called to do because i can't do that right i just have to um i have to stay in the room where i'm uncomfortable and also try to create a space where we can have we can have transformative conversations and and generous ones um, and like you said, in this climate right now, it's 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 not easy and I'm living yeah. it. I'm living it in real time. Yeah, so, and
0: and we experience it across our our system. You know, the, what's yeah. often referred to as the justice system, which people who are close to it and families like mine that have been impacted by it are pretty sure it's not always yeah. about justice. It's about no. punishment and some other thing. We'll say regularly, we need to have a system that isn't so punitive. People are more than the worst thing they've ever done when we're speaking about those justice issues. And sometimes the very conversation about that doesn't treat people who have not always seen things in the best of light with the same level of grace.
1: with well, the same level of generosity. And that, um, and that's, a, um, and that's not a, that, that kind of context in my world, um, it is, is is very rare. And in, in typically what happens is that there are whole sectors of our church that basically say any political topic is off the table because yeah. we're trying to create a safe space. And the way we're yes. going to do that is we're just not going to talk politics. And politics doesn't mean partisanship. It means yeah. anything, any issue that has risen into the political agenda, right? Gun violence, abortion, you know, trans kids, we're just not going to talk about it and that's and it's effective in that community we're just going to everyone can come and you know you're going to be safe but we're not talking about it and then there are you know darn it we are going to talk about it um and how to how to have that conversation is that's my life right now and um and i don't know how it's going to turn out you know i i uh, (laughs) i mean it's
0: (laughs) it's curious you think about people sort of our ages that at some point in the 70s or 80s were like Boy, what I wouldn't give to live in a time of great social conflict! And you know, <laughs> I've like, "Oh yeah, yeah how's that, how's that going for you then?" It, well, it, here it? we are. We don't get to pick, right? You know, we just you get sure to choose
1: don't. how we live, right?
0: Yeah. So. But yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. You, you don't get to pick the context, but you do have some agency in what you do and right. how you live. And you, my dear friend, have chosen to contribute, among other things, this great book. How we learn to be brave, which is spectacular, and uh, and you chose to be on this on this little podcast, and that means the world yeah. to me, and I'm sure to everybody who's watching this. So, everyone should go buy this book, and if they're ever in uh, Washington D.C. on some given Sunday, they should try to find one of the I don't know 86 churches that you could possibly be in on that given day, and find <laughs> yeah. where's the bishop. Uh, yeah. where's the bishop today? And the cathedral is not the place to go. I've had some friends that are like, Hey, I'm going to Washington DC. I'm going to stop by and see your, uh, see your friend, the bishop. Cause I brag about you being my friend all the time. And, uh, and they're like, I went to the cathedral. Uh, she wasn't there. I'm like, yeah, that's, unfortunately, that's not how that, that's not how that works. He doesn't just, right, right. there is somebody who handles that. It's not the bishop. And that just confuses people all the more.
1: It's,
0: it's, it's very confusing. I thank you. No well, thank, thank you friend.
1: John. You, you are also uh, striving to be brave in, and courageous and gener- generous in your work and your conversations and I do believe your call to this and that you you are making you are making a difference in ways that perhaps will never be uh, known to you but will be lived out in the lives of uh, many people who will be the beneficiaries of your efforts. Thanks. Honored well, to call you my friend.
0: Well thank you I accept that blessing from my bishop.
1: Thank you.
0: I mean, seriously, how about that, huh? Bishop Marianne, just the best. Uh, by the way, if you're still watching this, you're a super watcher. Thank you. And you're probably thinking, that's the third shirt Doug gets worn in this one live stream. <laughs> yes, I, in the middle of that, I had to change shirts. Uh, and then recorded that yesterday, uh, or two days ago, with Bishop Marianne Buddy. Uh, again, the book, uh, How We Learn to Be Brave, uh, Really, it's terrific. If you've got a group or just you as an individual that's looking for something to read, something to engage with, uh, do that. Uh, it was good to see uh, Chris and Mike and Yabitz and Jim and Linda uh, all in the chat. Um, share this with a friend. Uh, poke it around. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, you know, we rarely ever say this, but go to the places where, like, you give recommendations and say that you like this podcast because just Grief, if you're listening for an hour to us, maybe three times a week, uh, you obviously like it. So let other people know that you do. We'll be back tomorrow. Today is Wednesday. Tomorrow we'll be talking early in the morning, uh, 8 a.m. Central Time with astrophysicist Paul Wallace. Uh, all right. So uh thanks for being a part of this today. Uh thank you especially to Bishop Marianne Buddy of the Episcopal Church of Washington, D.C. And uh, We'll see you all later.